Father, we come to you this morning with nothing of ourselves to offer. Father, you have called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Before the world existed, you have chosen to set your love upon us, wicked and vile sinners. And so we come rejoicing. We come with great thanksgiving. We come not, no longer as your enemies, but as your adopted sons and daughters. We approach your throne with boldness and with confidence through the finished work of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And this morning, Lord, we do boldly ask for you to produce fruit from our efforts yesterday at Crabapple Fest. Lord, 40 to 50,000 people passed by us on the street. So many, so many without hope, without you, lost in this world. Lord, we pray that right now, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would prick their consciences, that you would reveal to them the depth of their hopelessness, that they would look over right now at that counter and see the bag that we gave them, and that they would look in it, and they would see that gospel track, and they would read it, and they would know of your great love for them, for that while they were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for them, that all who repent of their sins and believe in Christ can be saved and forgiven and have hope and life eternal. Lord, we pray that you would do that right now. Pray that you would build your church here at Milton Community Church, that we would be a display of your glory here in our community and to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray that you would give us a passion for evangelism and for missions, that we would be faithful to proclaim your gospel, not just at Crabapple Fest, but at each and every day throughout our lives. Lord, that we would see conversions, that you would bring many people to faith through your witness here at Milton Community Church. Lord, we pray for our mission. Our mission as Milton Community Church is to love you according to your word, to love one another by your grace and to make disciples for your glory. Lord, unite us in Christ around that mission. Let us go forward together. Let, let us be united as we, as, we, uh, as we, by your spirit, by your power, advance your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Lord, make us one. You've already made us one in the gospel. Let us live out that unity. Let us love one another as Christ has loved us. And by our love for one another, may others know that we are your disciples and may they give glory to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to join with me this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22. Last week, as we looked at the first 10 verses of this chapter, we saw the gospel. We saw the good news of Jesus Christ, and we saw the bad news that made it necessary. We saw that all mankind is naturally dead in sin. We all, according to our nature, were spiritually dead. We were separated from God. We were incapable of doing good. Not only were we incapable of doing good, but we were actively doing evil. We were following our own desires. We were following this world. Paul says we were even following Satan. He says we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All mankind, apart from Christ, is utterly sinful and deserving of God's eternal judgment. But verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's good news, right? Not because of anything we would do or could do, but because of what Christ did. 
because of Christ's sinless life, because of Christ's substitutionary death, and because of Christ's victorious resurrection, we who were dead have been made alive. By grace alone, through faith alone, we have been saved. It was not our own doing. It was the gift of God. And now we are to live for Christ, walking in the good works which God prepared for us. Praise God. This is exciting news. But I want to ask you a question about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As I'm describing that, and as you're hearing that again, who comes to mind? Who's the first person that comes to mind when, when you think of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10? What person are you thinking of? Yourself, right? Me, right? If you're a Christian in this room, you hear Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you say, that's me. And before we go any further, I want to affirm that that's, that's true, right? You, individually, were dead in your sins. You, individually, were, have been made alive in Christ. For by grace, you, individually, have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own personal doing, right? It's the gift of God. Let me ask a question. Is that the thrust of this text? Is Paul's emphasis here in Ephesians 2, is it individual? What do you think? Yes or no? Let's remind ourselves, who is this letter written to? Right? Who is this letter written to? That's an easy, easy question. Just tell me. Who is this letter written to? The church at Ephesus, right? A body of believers. And we can so easily miss this in our hyper-individualistic culture. We read the you in Ephesians 2, and, and we think me. But I want to point out that every single you in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is plural in the original Greek. We can miss that in our English translations, but notice all the we's and the us's as well. This letter is inherently corporate. The gospel is inherently corporate. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Look with me again at verse 10. It says, For we, plural, are his workmanship, singular, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, plural, should walk in them. So that changes the picture a little bit, doesn't it? Later in Ephesians, in a couple months, we're going to look at Paul's instruction for us to put on the armor of God. And how do we usually imagine that, right? I put on my helmet of salvation and my breastplate of righteousness and my belt of truth and my sword of the Spirit and my shield of faith, and I'm ready to take on the enemy like Bible man, right? Just me against the world. But what's going to happen if I go out there alone? I'm going to get eaten for lunch, right? The Christian life is not, to be, not meant to be lived alone. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. No, Christ has built his church in the gates of hell, won't be able to stand against it. So as we continue in our study of Ephesians this morning, instead of thinking me, 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 I want us to think we, we, we. For while our faith is always personal, it's never private. So that's what we'll be seeing in our text this morning, that Christ has reconciled us to God and to one another. He's made us one body. He's torn down the dividing wall between us, and he's building us into a dwelling place. That's the title of this morning's sermon, Dividing Wall to Dwelling Place. In verses 11 through 13, we're going to see who Christ has brought near. Verses 14 through 18, we're going to see what Christ has broken down. And then in verses 19 through 22, we're going to see what Christ is building together. 
So three points this morning. Christ has brought near, Christ has broken down, and Christ is building together. Let's look at verses 11 through 13 again. Ask the question, who has Christ brought near? Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here, we are introduced to the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We're going to talk more about the division between Jews and Gentiles in our second point, but here we see that there is a difference between Jews and Gentiles. So, who were the Jews? The Jews were the covenant people of God. They were God's people, his treasured possession over the face of the earth. Of all the people on the earth, God had called out Abraham from his people and said to him in Genesis 12, you remember this, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. That nation was who? Israel. Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham to give him a son in his old age and from that son would come many sons, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea And one of those future sons would be the Messiah, the Savior, the King who would save his people. That was the hope of Israel. Salvation was through Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the covenant people of God. Okay, so that's the Jews. Now, who are the Gentiles? Everyone else. Everyone not descended from Abraham were Gentiles. And the church at Ephesus was full of Gentiles. And Paul is saying to them, remember who you were. Remember who you were. He's already done this once, right? In Ephesians 2 verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's already told them to remember that because they are descended from Adam, they were spiritually dead. Because they were a part of fallen humanity, they were children of wrath. Like all mankind, they were separated from God. And now he's saying to them, not only were you separated from God because you are part of mankind, you were doubly separated because you were Gentiles. And then he tells them five ways in which they were separated. Let's go through those five ways real quick. First, they were separated from Christ. They were separated from Christ. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. Paul is saying to them, you are separated from the Jewish Messiah. You were not a part of the Messianic people. You were, you had no hope. You had no thought or want or expectation of a coming Messiah who would bring salvation. And even if you did, you had no part in him because you weren't a part of his covenant people. They were separated from the Jewish Messiah. Second, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were outsiders. They weren't citizens of the kingdom of God. They weren't a part of God's chosen people. The Gentiles had no share in the blessing of Israel. They didn't have rights and privileges of citizenship. And even if they wanted to, they couldn't fully participate 
Even if they renounced their Gentile ways and converted to Judaism, they still couldn't draw near to God. Why not? Why not? Yeah, the law of Israel kept them out. The law of Israel kept them out. Listen to Deuteronomy 23, verses 2 through 3. It says, No one born of a foreign marriage may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. It's a clear-cut line, a clear-cut distinction. The law of Moses kept Gentiles out. It excluded them. It told them they were not permitted to enter the assembly. And then when the people of Israel come back from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah, we see this even more clearly. It says in Nehemiah 13, 1 through 3, that on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written, they read what we just read, no Ammonite, no Moabite should ever enter into the assembly of God. What did they do? When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Everybody. If you're not Jewish, you're out. So not only was this barrier written into the law, but there were physical barriers as well, right? We're talking about Nehemiah and Ezra. What did Nehemiah come back to do? What did Nehemiah lead the people to do? Who said it? Build a wall, right? What's a wall meant for? To keep people out, to make a separation, right? And then after they built the wall, what did they rebuild? The temple. And what was the temple full of? Walls, right? Walls to keep people out. In the, in the temple, the second temple, Gentiles who converted to Judaism were only allowed in the outermost courtyard, the court of the Gentiles. So exclusion from the commonwealth of Israel was a big deal. It's a big deal. Let me, ask, let me ask this question. Who set up that exclusion? God. God set up that exclusion. God set up that dividing wall. Through God's holy law, Gentiles were separated. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that later. Third, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. So God had promised to be with Abraham and promised to be with descendants, and then he had established further covenants with Moses and with David to bless his people and to be with his people and to save his people, but the Gentiles had no such promise, no such covenant. Then the fourth and fifth ones go together. It says the Gentiles were without hope and without God in the world. They were hopeless and godless. To be without God is to be without hope. As the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, vanity of vanities. Without God, it's all vanity. Without God, this life is all there is. So the philosophy of the Gentiles was what? Let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The Greek poet Theogonies writes, I will try to have a good time while I'm young because I will lie under the earth for a long time, voiceless as a stone, and I shall leave the sunlight that I loved. Then I shall see no more. Have a good time, my soul, while young. Soon others will take my place, and I shall be black earth in death. No mortal is happy under the sun. The Roman poet Catullus wrote, The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. Do you, do you hear that? 
That's no hope without God in the world. That was the state of the Gentiles. They were far off with no hope of ever coming near. Even if they wanted to come near, they couldn't. There were dividing walls in the way, barriers between them and God that they could not tear down. Not only were they dead in their sins, they were separated, alienated, strangers, having no hope and without God. But look at verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just like in verse four, the picture is bleak. All the news is bad. It looks like there is no way forward. The dividing walls between Gentiles and God has been torn down because of what Christ has done on the cross. Not only has the outer wall been torn down, the curtain has been torn in too. Gentiles can enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. And this was always the plan. All the way back in Genesis 12, we finished reading that covenant. When God makes that covenant with Abraham, he says to him, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just your family, Abraham, but all the families of the earth shall be blessed because of the covenant I am making with you today. Israel was to be a light to the nations. Listen to these words from Isaiah 49 verse 6. God said, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. No, that's too small. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is good news. Gentile inclusion was always the plan. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, would come through Israel, but not just for Israel. He would come to bring those who are far off near by his own blood. The dirtiest and foulest and worst of sinners can be totally cleansed by the blood. All right, we sing of this in our old hymns, right? Sin had left a crimson stain, but he did what? He washed it white as snow. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Amen? Amen. Christ has brought us near. That's the good news. So let me give you four applications right here from our first point. First, repent. Repent. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, repent of your sins and trust in Him as Lord. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, when you turn away from your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus alone, he takes your filthy robe of sin and he puts it on himself on the cross. He pays the penalty due for your sin. Death, the full cup of God's wrath. And by his blood, you can be forgiven because your debt is paid in full. Not only does he take your filthy robe of sin, but he gives you his perfect, clean, pure robe of righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin, but the perfect righteousness of your son. 
So when you stand before God on that last day, God no longer sees your sin, but he welcomes you into his arms as if you lived the life that Christ himself lived. If you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ and to receive him as your Lord, please talk to someone today. I would be happy to talk to you after the service, but so would anybody sitting around you. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't wait another day. Second point of application. Remember, remember. If you are here today and you have received Christ, remember what you once were. We were all dead in our sins. And I'm pretty sure the overwhelming majority of us here today are probably Gentiles. We were far off. We were separated, aliens, strangers, without hope and without God in this world. We need to understand the incredible work that Christ has done in bringing us as Gentiles who are so far away from God near in Christ. And then we need to thirdly rejoice. Rejoice in so great a salvation. Say in your heart as we just sang, Jesus, thank you. By his perfect sacrifice, we've been brought near. His enemies, he's made his friends. His blood has washed away our sins, right? Say, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath is completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. We who were once his enemies are now seated at his table. Jesus, thank you. The more we realize who we were before we were converted, the more joyful and thankful will be now. So we need to repent. We need to remember. We need to rejoice. And fourth, we need to proclaim reconciliation. What we just read and heard about the Gentiles is true of every single lost person on the planet. They are without hope and without God in this world. That's not just the ancient Greeks and Romans. All right, look around. Suicide rates are at an all-time high in our country. Depression and anxiety are running rampant through our culture. Those without God have no hope. Can you imagine what that's like? Maybe you've struggled with some of those things, but can you imagine going through those things and not having God? Right? What's the point of life? There is no point. If we came from nothing, we will return to nothing. We're here for 70, 80, 90, 100 years, and none of it matters. Nothing you say, nothing you do, nothing you think, nothing you accomplish. If there is no God, if there is no greater purpose, then your life counts for nothing. And as we've seen, this hopelessness of those without God has been true through all of history, but we're seeing it play out in real time in our culture today. Gen Z, the, the next generation, is the most atheistic generation in American history. Barna Research tells us that the percentage of teens who identify as atheist is double that of the general population, 13% of Gen Z versus 6% of all other adults. The proportion that identifies as Christian likewise drops from generation to generation. So three out of four percent of baby boomers, 75%, identify as Christians, while just three in five percent of Gen Z say that they are some kind of Christian, 59%. And at the same time that belief in God is going down, depression and suicide rates are going up. 
According to a 2019 study, between 2009 and 2017, depression rates increased more than 47% among 12 to 13-year-olds. It increased 60% among 14 to 17-year-olds. And it increased 46% among 18 to 21-year-olds. And this is not news, right? Gen Zs are aware of this struggle. A 2018 survey of teens 13 to 17 reports that 70% of respondents see anxiety and depression as a major problem among their peers. It's not just the next generation. The CDC reports a 30% increase in suicides in the United States from 2000 to 2016 with rates increasing in every single age group. This world is lost and dying without hope and without God. So here's the question to you. What are you going to do about it? What has God demanded that you do about it? Fight with them? Strive for political power? No. Proclaim reconciliation. Proclaim reconciliation. Turning your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to see this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 21, how Paul has been given the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, according to earthly things, according to this present physical life. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and did what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ has brought us near. Repent, remember, rejoice, and proclaim reconciliation. May the gospel always be on your lips. Flip back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. And ask the question, what has Christ torn down? What has Christ torn down? Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
As we've seen in our first point, Christ tore down the dividing wall between Gentiles and God. And here we see that Christ has torn down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Notice here how Paul, an ethnic Jew, switches from using you, talking to the Gentiles, to now using our and we. He says, for he himself is our peace. Right? Jesus is the promised prince of peace who would bring peace between God and man and among men. At his birth, what did the angels sing? It said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. God's gift of peace would come to his elect, both Jew and Gentile. Paul is making a radical claim here that Jesus has made Jews and Gentiles one and has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between them. We talked earlier about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but I want to emphasize the division and hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews and Gentiles hated one another. They called each other dogs. There was real hatred and animosity toward one another. And as we've seen, this dividing wall of hostility was not figurative. It was a literal dividing wall. In Herod's temple, there was a real physical wall which separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. And on that wall, there were inscriptions in Latin and Greek forbidding Gentiles to enter. We learn about this through the Jewish historian Josephus. And then in excavations made in the 19th and 20th centuries, we found two of those inscriptions. Here's how they read. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So as you can see, the Jews reveled in Gentile exclusion. We can say they missed the point because they did, but we still have to ask, who set up the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles? We answered earlier. You had the right answer. Who set it up? God did. We read it in the law of Moses. God, in his law, separated Jews from Gentiles. He put up the barrier. The dividing wall was established by God himself. The ceremonial and civil aspects of God's law excluded Gentiles. Circumcision, dietary laws, laws about worship. God set up a clear distinction and division between his people, the Jews, and all other people. God's people were to be distinct from all the other nations. But... Israel missed the point. God did not command Israel to carefully keep his law because of how great and awesome Israel was. No, it was to show how great and awesome he was, right? The law was not given to show Jewish superiority. It was given to show God's superiority. Listen to Moses speak to Israel in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. He says to them, he's giving them the law and he's teaching them about it. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear these statutes will say, surely this, is, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law 
that I set before you today. So part of the reason that Israel was to carefully obey God's law was so that other nations would see and glorify God. Four nations would see Israel's obedience and that would draw them to Israel's God. But full obedience to the law was never the point. Because Moses' next warning was, take care, watch yourselves. For if you disobey God, he will not bring blessing, but curses upon you. And then Moses goes from warning to prophecy. He goes from if to when. For when you disobey, God will take the land from you and exile you in a foreign land. Because salvation according to the law was impossible. No one could achieve it. Salvation has never been by works. It's always been by faith. But that didn't stop the Jews from trying to be saved by works. They missed the point of the law. The law was given to show God's holiness and to reveal their sin. The law only has power to condemn us. It cannot save us. But the Jews, they worked hard to accomplish their salvation by outer obedience to God's law. We skipped this verse earlier, but look back at verse 11. Paul adds in this almost parenthetical phrase in verse 11, right? He could have just said, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. But he adds in this statement. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. So what's Paul doing here? Why does he add in this statement? Well, along with condemning the Gentiles, he's also condemning the Jews. The Jews who were circumcised according to the law of Moses, which was the sign of the covenant, called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, and they called themselves the circumcision. Then, Paul adds, which is made in the flesh by hands. What Paul is saying here is that the ethnic, unbelieving Jewish circumcision is merely external. It's merely physical. It's not a spiritual circumcision. It's merely human. It's not a work of God. It doesn't point to the inward circumcision, which was supposed to be a circumcision of the heart. The circumcision done in the body by hands of men was not the real circumcision. The true circumcision, as Brandon read earlier from Colossians 2.11, was not made with hands. It's the circumcision of Christ. Right? Outward obedience to the law could not save. So what did Christ do? Look at Ephesians 2.14. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ in the new covenant fulfilled the moral law, carefully keeping all of its requirements. And he abolished the Jewish old covenant ceremonial and civil laws. So the barrier between Jews and Gentiles was torn down by Christ's life and death and resurrection, he has reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God and to one another. As Jesus was killed on the cross, he killed the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Those who were far away from the covenant promises, the Gentiles, 
and those who are close to the covenant promises, the Jews, have equal access to God through the cross of Christ. And as they are reconciled to God, they are reconciled to one another. Those who were once enemies have now become brothers. God did not do this by making the Gentiles all Jews, and he did not do this by making the Jews all Gentiles. He created one new man in place of the two, an entirely new humanity. We, Jews and Gentiles, are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are God's masterpiece, a new race in Christ Jesus. But you, Peter writes to the church, both Jew and Gentile, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So here's the immediate application. If dividing walls between people that God himself set up are demolished in Christ, then how much more are dividing walls that God did not set up demolished in Christ? How much more, right? This sort of gospel unity is the answer to all man-made division. It's the answer to racism and to prejudice and to hatred and division. But isn't it interesting how the word unity can bring so much division? Have you noticed that? There's a lot of arguing about unity, especially, for example, when we talk about ethnic unity. I think Satan is thrilled about our disunity when it comes to unity. Tolkien illustrates this perfectly in The Fellowship of the Ring. If you've read the book, you may remember the scene in The Fellowship made up of some men and an elf and a dwarf and some hobbits are are making their way through the elvish forest of Lothlorien. They're stopped by a, a group of elves led by Elf Lord Haldir. Right? There was enmity and distrust between elves and dwarves, and the elves would not let the group go through unless they blindfolded Gimli, the dwarf, in the group. Gimli was not happy about this, and so Aragorn, to protect the unity of the group, said, why don't we all be blindfolded? And we'll be led through the forest together. Listen to the dialogue that follows between Legolas, who was the elf in the fellowship, and Haldir, who was the elf lord of the forest. Alas, for the folly of these days, said Legolas. Here are all enemies of the one enemy, and yet I must walk blind while the sun is merry in the woodland under leaves of gold. Listen to this. Folly it may seem, said Haldir. Indeed, in nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. In the fictional world of Middle-earth, right, there were real differences between dwarves and elves and men and hobbits. But if they spent all their time fighting against one another, they stood no chance against the enemy. But if they would join together and be united by a cause greater than their differences, they would be victorious. And you remember, if you've seen the movies, uh, that that scene is displayed beautifully in The Return of the King, the last movie, when approaching the final battle, Gimli, the dwarf, says to Legolas, the elf, he says, I never thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. And what does Legolas say back? What about side by side with a friend? And Gimli replies, aye, I could do that, (laughs) right? This is what the gospel has done, right? If it's true in a fictional movie and inspiring in a fictional movie, how much more true is 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 it true in Christ, right? The gospel has made natural born enemies friends, 
Because of sin, humans set up so many dividing walls, whether that's ethnic or cultural or generational or socioeconomic, we naturally divide ourselves. Because of sin, we are all born prideful. And because we're prideful, that leads to egocentrism, right? We think we're the best. And that egocentrism turns into ethnocentrism. We think people like us are the best. And so we start to look down on others who are not like us and criticize others and despise others. That's always been a part of fallen humanity. Humans have always been doing this since sin entered the world. But the unity of the church should stand in stark contrast to the division of the world. So often, the church displays the same or worse division than the world. Brothers and sisters, that should not be the case. The church should be showing the world what true unity is because we're the only ones who have true unity. Jesus purchased that unity for us. He bought it with his own blood. Now, there are so many directions that we could take this application, and I want to chase so many of them. But what division, what human division comes to your mind in the church? Now, let me ask, is that a division that God himself set up? No? Well, if not, since Christ himself demolished a dividing wall that God himself did set up, how much more does he demolish that dividing wall which he did not set up? In almost every New Testament epistle, there is instruction for Jews and Gentiles to get along, to display their supernatural unity. It would have been so much easier, humanly speaking, to have the first Jewish church of Ephesus and the first Gentile church of Ephesus. Then they could do things how they wanted to do them. They wouldn't have to worry about this unity business, right? But they didn't do that. Why? Because our unity with one another displays the gospel of Christ. Christ has torn down dividing walls. He has made many into one body. People from all the families over the face of the earth, he has made into one family. Another movie illustration I, I love, Remember the Titans. That's probably my favorite movie of all time. But remember the, the, towards the end of the movie, that scene when Gary Bertier is in the hospital. Spoiler alert, he gets paralyzed from a car accident. And Julius Campbell walks in. And the whole movie set in the desegregation era has shown the journey of these two teams separated by skin color become one new team, right? The Titans. Gary was white and Julius was black. And Julius walks into the hospital room and the nurse says to him, you guys remember the scene? Only kin's allowed in here, right? Only family allowed in here. And Gary from the hospital bed says to the nurse, Alice, are you blind? Don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. That's what the gospel does. It makes enemies brothers. It creates a new family. People who are nothing alike, who humanly speaking should have nothing to do with one another, are now one in Christ. We're no longer identified by our human differences, but by Christ. That's the kingdom of God. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Christ has broken down the dividing wall between us and is building together a dwelling place for God. Look at verses 18 through 22 with me of Ephesians 2. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Through the work of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jews and Gentiles both have access to God the Father. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. We all have the same access. Gentiles are no longer strangers to the covenant and aliens to the commonwealth, for we've been grafted in, and we, along with believing Jews, are now full citizens of the kingdom of God, the true spiritual Israel, the church, the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, built on holy scripture, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the sure and steady foundation, the rock on which we stand. The church... Us, we here today, are being built on Christ. Christians from every tribe and tongue and people and nation are being joined together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we corporately are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ is building us, the church, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Who's doing the building? Christ. Christ is doing the building. He's calling the elect from every nation and he's building us together into his dwelling place. So our job is just be faithful. Let's do what he commanded and let's get out of the way, right? We have to make sure that we are not actively working against the building of God's dwelling place, either intentionally or unintentionally, right? Listen to these familiar words from 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So like I asked earlier, let me ask again. Is the you in those verses singular or plural? What do you think? Plural, plural, right? It's true that your body individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6. But here in 1 Corinthians 3, the you is plural. The emphasis is on the corporate nature of the church. We, the church, are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in us corporately. And Paul gives a stark warning in that passage. If anyone destroys God's temple, if anyone destroys the unity of God's church, God will destroy him. For God's temple, the church, is holy, and we corporately are that temple and so we have to fight to guard that unity we have to fight temptations to disunity both from outside and inside all right we mentioned nehemiah earlier in the building of the wall do you remember what the people had in each hand as they built the wall they had a a trowel in one hand to build the wall and a sword in the other hand to fight off enemies right we're not building a wall the wall has been demolished but we are being built into a dwelling place And so let's build the church according to his plan and let's not use our swords against each other, right? Let's use our swords to fight for our unity. So let me ask some questions. Milton Community Church, will you fight for unity? We are two churches that have become one new church. We want to display the glory of God here in Milton and we want his kingdom to advance to the ends of the earth. Let me tell you a secret. Satan hates that. Satan hates that. The enemy will do everything he can to stop that. So are you willing to fight together? Not only do we face temptation from outside, we face temptation from inside. 
Your flesh is going to fight against this sort of unity. What will you do when your own personal preferences and own desires aren't being met? What will you do when that person offends you again? What will you do when you miss the way things used to be? Will you fight for unity? Are you willing to put your swords down against one another and stand and fight together? Milton Community Church, let's be a church that displays this sort of supernatural unity because Christ has brought us near to God. Christ has broken down the dividing wall between us and Christ is building us together into a dwelling place for God. Let's unite together as our mission as Milton Community Church to love God according to his word, to love one another by his grace, and to make disciples for his glory. One day, one day, the mission will be complete. Christ will return and we will dwell with him and with one another in perfect unity. We're about to celebrate a foretaste of that heavenly feast. In just a moment, we're gonna partake of the Lord's Supper together, which scripture says makes us one body. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 17. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So in the Lord's Supper, we look back to what Christ has done for us on the cross. We look up to where Christ is seated in the heavens as we commune with him spiritually through this meal. We look around to the covenant body that Christ has bought with his own blood. And we look forward to what Christ will do when he returns. When we will eat and drink with him in his father's kingdom. This meal is open to everyone who has repented of their sins and believed in Christ alone for salvation who is followed in Christ's command to be baptized as a believer and who is a member in good standing of a local church that preaches the true gospel. The Lord's Supper is a serious matter. Listen to this warning from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So before we partake of the Lord's Supper, let's take a moment of solemn self-examination. Let's discern the body. Let's repent of our sins and turn to Christ for forgiveness. Father, we rejoice in so great a salvation that we who are far off have been brought near, that you have reconciled us to yourself and reconciled us to one another, that our vertical relationship with you has been restored and we now have a horizontal relationship with your people, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God, we thank you for the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to live in that unity. Help us to live in the reality that Christ has purchased for us until one day when we will dwell with you and with one another forever in perfect unity, free from all sin. We look forward to that day with great expectation. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.
Let's stand, and we're going to sing together, and we're going to uh, come in and take the, the communion elements.